We want to turn our hearts to 1 Peter chapter 5 today, and I want to talk to you about a very simple topic uh, called Christian maturity. Now, by talking about Christian maturity today, I'm not talking about doctrinal maturity. There are doctrinal maturity, there is doctrinal maturity that we all need to come into. Um, we know that one of the apostles wrote and said that we need to move beyond, not move away from, but to move beyond elementary things and grow up into everything that God has given us and the Spirit has taught us. We understand that. But our focus isn't on doctrine today. Our focus is not on liturgy today when we talk about Christian maturity. We're talking about behavior. We're going to talk about five behavioral goals that Peter gives us as he writes his letter. Now, I want to say this. Uh, 1 Peter was written to people in tough times. And um, I, I think that's a good description of the days in which we're living. In fact, he called them the last days. And so I think the closer we get to the return of the Lord, the more important the letters of St. Peter are to us. As I was pray praying about this message, I felt the Lord impress upon my heart um, a couple of things. I felt that he cautioned me to be sure that I did not present this so that people would take on self-flagellation, you know, just beat themselves up uh, in evaluating their lives. I'm so sorry as a Christian, I'd never do anything right. Because that's not the nature of the Lord's correction. That's not what he's trying to communicate today. But I really felt that the Lord said, but I don't want them to be jaded in their estimation either. Now, that's a, a strange word, jaded. We, we know what it means. We, when someone is, is either tired or cynical, we say they're jaded. And um, I, I, I want you to understand what, what I believe to be the meaning of that phrase, jaded. Now, you go back and you find all kinds of theories for the origin of jaded. You know, it's, it's like the person that uh, was told uh, she was a young newlywed and was, her husband was so proud of her for um, cooking a ham to perfection. And he said, I've noticed that you've cut the end off the ham because he had bought it at the store. And she, he said, why did you do that? He, she said, well, you'd have to ask my mother. That's the way she taught me to do it. They went back to mom and she said, well, that's just the way I was taught by your grandmother. And they went to grandmother. She said, well, I don't know. That's the way you're supposed to cook a ham because that's the way your great grandmother taught me. They went to the nursing home and asked great grandmother why she cut the end off the ham. Is it inedible? Is it tough? She said, no, she said, we were poor folks. We couldn't afford a big pan. And so we always had to cut the end off to make it fit the pan, you know. So we want to be sure when we're looking at the origin of something, we try to get the right one. Um, there are some that say jaded. It, the word mare comes from a word that sounds like jaded. And, and they just say jaded means to be tired like a mare, a horse that's run so long. But there's an earlier explanation of what jaded meant, and I think this is the right one. Um, we know it happened, so whether this is the primary origin or not, I think it's a good uh, thing to help us understand what it means to be jaded. Now, when we say jaded, 
again, we say somebody that doesn't have an accurate view or they're cynical. Cynical is the best word in English that I know to communicate the idea of being jaded. You're cynical about something. You've been around something so long, you've heard it so long, you've seen it so long that you don't see it exactly right anymore. You don't hear it exactly right anymore. It doesn't bring the right response to you anymore. And the story goes back, this is the oldest explanation for jaded. In the days of art of the Middle Ages, the uh, the artists did not have all the technological advances we have today in the color palettes. But what they would often do is to take a jade stone, and if you found a good one and you polished it up, and I know when we think of jade, we usually think of green, but jade stones actually come in six colors. And if you find a jade stone and you polish it, if it's a good stone and you polish it well, it is said or was thought by the artist that that reflects the most accurate depiction of color available. I mean, if you want to know what true red is, look at a red jade stone. If you want to know what green is, look at a green jade stone. And we're told that artists of the Middle Ages, along with their paint and all of the, the, the tools of their talent and their trade, they would often have one or two or all six colors of jade stones and their world was color. So what they would do from time to time is move those jade stones into the light so that when they started to paint their picture, they said, this is a true red. This is what red really looks like. This is what green really looks like. This is what yellow really looks like. And for an artist that would paint a picture that they thought was just magnificent, but the colors were off, they were said to be jaded. They needed to go back to the jade stones and see what the real colors were. I think that may be what Simon Peter is doing here. He's speaking to people that were of mature faith. He's no doubt writing to young Christians, but in his audience are also mature seasoned saints. In fact, uh, in First and Second Peter, you also can understand he's writing to the pastors who you would hope would be seasoned in these things. And he says, remember this, this is the model of your behavior. So loved ones, I don't want you to come away from this feeling like, boy, I've, I scored 20 on this test today. But neither do I want you to pass off flippantly because you're jaded. You've heard it so much that you've lost the significance of it. You've seen it so much that it doesn't mean to you what it used to mean to you. I implore you in the name of Jesus to pull out the jade stone of God's word. And let's look at what the Lord really says about our behavioral goals. Because of these five things, you're going to sound that four of them sound, two of them sound very much alike, and another two of them sound very much alike. And the other one is related to all of them. And if you're not careful, you can read these verses and think Peter's just saying the same thing over and over again. But that's not the case. Well, I know you're ready, so let's read the Word of God today. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 10. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. 
because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. Now, let me interrupt myself right here. 2020 and 2021 has been marked by God humbling his church, his people, his servants, our nation. And it's not that God is angry saying, I'm going to crush you. I tell you what he's doing. He's trying to move us to a place of humility where our confidence is in him and his word, not someone else's word or not someone else's take on things. The prophetic community in particular took such a hit and it's not because prophecy is wrong. It's not because the prophets are evil. I mean, I'm sure there are some, but I think that when you have a revelatory gift like prophecy or a word of wisdom or something like that, I think it is absolutely essential that you go through times of humbling because few of us have the spiritual maturity and the steadiness of hand to hold a full cup. And, and I know there are some pastors, I know there are some in the prophetic community that just keeps doubling down. No, we were right. We could never miss it. We were right. But I want to tell you, the greatest servants and vessels of, of God, I think at the end of the day, are going to be found to be those that humbled themselves. Even if they don't understand what happened, they humble themselves because humility is the currency of heaven. Not faith and not anointing. It's humility. Well, I better go on before somebody disagrees. He says um, in verse 8, Be of sober spirit on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who were in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Now, all of 1 Peter is a handbook for survival in tough times. Um, when you read it, he's calling it the last of the last days. Uh, in the chapter before, the one we're reading from today, he said, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, I want to say this. The end of all things doesn't mean a cessation of existence. When he says the end of all things is near, he doesn't say a comet's going to hit the earth and wipe it out or the sun's going to explode and the end of life as we know it is coming to an end. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying this, it is the end of this present age. Now, this present age is coming to an end. And loved ones, we talk about that like it's some mystical thing out there. We sound, when we talk about the coming age, we sound like 12-year-old boys trying to imagine what their perfect wife is going to look like. But it's right here near us. The end of this age is upon us. And we need to realize that a new heaven and a new earth is just over the horizon. Now, with this new 
era coming, he says, God wants to complete you, not perfect you in the sense of no flaws. Now, he's going to be able to do that, <coughs> but we should understand this idea of completeness. He says, in these tough days, God is trying to bring you to maturity. He's trying to bring us all to maturity. One preacher said, we should understand that we're only young for a while, but we can be immature for a long, long time. We need to understand that time does not necessarily indicate experience or maturity. Uh, you know, I got into a discussion with someone in my early ministry and they said, you're just a young whippersnapper. And oh, what I'd give for somebody to call me that today. <laughs> But I was in my, my mid-20s. He says, I, I've lived, he said, I've, I've lived over twice as long as you have. He said, don't think you've got anything to tell me. He said, I've been a Christian. He said, I've got 50 years experience as a Christian. And I tell you what I told him. I said, I pastored you for a year. And I tell you what I think. I think you've got one year of experience 50 times. I said, you've been walking with the Lord. The problem is you've been walking in circles. Now, I wouldn't say that to him. I wish I hadn't said that to him because it says for the younger men to respect the older men as fathers. And I realize now there, was a, there were three or four different ways that I could have handled that better. But even though I didn't handle it well, I did tell him the truth. And we need to understand, loved ones, <coughs> that just because you've been a Christian a long time doesn't necessarily mean you're maturing. You remember, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, and, and basically what they were doing is walking in circles. So Peter gives us five measurable behavioral goals so that we can learn to hang tough and live right during these difficult times. Now, here's the first one. And I'm going to tell you now, they're going to sound very similar, but there are some very, um, very subtle distinctions. When you look at the jade stone, you'll understand what those dis distinctions are. Here's the first sign of maturity, and it is a spirit of submissiveness. A spirit of submissiveness. That's hard, especially for Americans. What are we celebrating today? Those limeys aren't going to tell us how to live. No taxation without representation. No bishop but the bishop of our souls. No king but King Jesus. I mean, we celebrate that. <coughs> and um, especially Southern Americans celebrate that. You know, we just have the mindset that uh, nobody is going to tell us what to do. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a troubling thing because in the kingdom of God, he calls us to a spirit of submissiveness. Now, let me say this about spirit. We Pentecostals tend to think of spirit of lust or spirit of submissiveness or spirit of humility. We think in terms of demons. You know, if I'm having trouble with lust, it's a demon you know, a spirit of lust or something like that. But the word translated spirit in, in English um, has two different designations in scripture. Number one, it can mean a non-physical entity. Somebody can have a spirit of infirmity or a spirit of lust or a spirit of anger. Um, it, we know that demon spirits 
can have names that sound like behavioral qualities. They have that as a name because when they manifest, that seems to be what manifests through them. You know, a deaf and dumb spirit, I don't think that demon walks around with a name tag that says deaf and dumb. But I think he's called that because that's the manifestation he caused uh, in, in that scriptural story. But I tell you the other meaning of spirit, there's a demonic entity or a non-physical entity, but it also is used, and more often I think than, than not, it's used to represent the attitude of a person. You may have a spirit of lust, not because a demon is afflicting you, but because you keep feeding your carnal side. And your attitude just leans into that. You may, you know, if, if we have an uncontrollable temper, we blame it on our ancestry or we blame it on the color of our hair. You know, that was a big one when I was growing up. Those of you with red hair, everybody knows you have an uncontrollable temper. That's what we were told growing up. And, and I can't think of anybody with red hair that I grew up with that had an uncontrollable temper, but it was a good story, you know. You, you know, whatever that thing is that marks you, it can, it can be your attitude. If you have an attitude of humility, it doesn't mean that an angel possesses you and gives you humility. It means you've cultivated the attitude. So when I'm talking about spirits in these five things, I'm not talking about demons or I'm not talking about angels. I'm talking about the attitude that you and I cultivate. Listen to what he said in verses five and six. You younger men likewise be subject, that's submissiveness, to your elders. You say, okay, well, the young men, they need to be subject to the elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? He, sa he said, it's for your own good. He says, God is opposed to the proud. But if you will embrace humility, submissiveness, he will give grace to you. Therefore, and whenever you see therefore, what do you do? You see what it's there for? He says, therefore, because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, let me say this about submissiveness. Submissiveness is not a form of slavery. Submissiveness is not blind following. But submission, here's, here's a definition of submission, is one who is an equal voluntarily placing himself or herself under another equal for the glory of God and the functionality of the kingdom. If I am submissive to Justin, it's not because Justin is superior to me and I'm less. It's not because Justin is my master and I'm, I'm his slave. Justin is my equal, but Justin and I ought to live in this way so that as equals, we willingly submit to one another for the purpose of the kingdom and functionality of the kingdom. Now, we're all equal, but we also know there are functions. And someone has the final say because of their function, but not because of their moral superiority. Now, um, whoa, 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 whoa. no, let's don't. I'm, I'm gonna, I rebuke myself. I'm not, I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail right now. But let me say it one more time. It's there in your notes. Submission is one 
who is equal voluntarily placing himself or herself under another equal. Why? So that God can be glorified and the kingdom can function. You, you can't have, you know, 2,000 pastors. You can't have 2,000 elders. Uh, everybody has their function. Everybody has their position. But it's not that God is working from superior down to inferior. We're all equal in Christ, but we equally submit to one another in order for the functionality of the kingdom to continue. This is what he says in 1 Peter. He says this ought to be reflected in your citizenship. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And by the way, I'm not saying there's never a time for rebellion. That's what we're celebrating today was the American rebellion. But, it, but our rebellion needs to be just. Our rebellion needs to be from the right motive and from the right set of circumstances. Um, uh, we are not as Christians to live as a law unto ourselves. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. You say, I want to win the lost. I want to win the lost. You know, one of the best ways to win the lost is to be a good citizen and to show them order in your life. And this is about as popular as a wart on your nose. So let's move on. He says, act as free people and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond servants for God. See? What he says in that last sentence, he said, you can't even understand the freedom that you have unless you first understand that you live a submissive life as a bondservant of God. Uh, it's not only true in our citizenship, it's true in our employment. 1 Peter 2, verse 18, he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are harsh. It's true in your family. In the same way, you wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your pure and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely the external, braiding the hair, wearing of gold jewelry, putting on of apparel. I grew up in a church where women didn't wear jewelry and women didn't do much with their hair because Peter prohibited it. But, but he also mentioned putting on of apparel. I do notice that all the women wore clothes, um, even if they wouldn't fix their hair or wear gold. And I'm just, I'm being funny. Those were godly women that wanted to obey scripture and wanted to obey God. But Peter wasn't saying you, you're made godly by doing this, this, and this, or not doing this, this, and this. He says there's, he wasn't saying there's anything wrong with, with a nice hairdo. He wasn't saying there's anything wrong with nice clothing, or, or uh, yeah, with, with nice clothing. He wasn't saying there's anything wrong with wearing of jewelry, but he said this. He said, with all your adornment of the outside, understand what really matters is the adornment of the inside. And he says, that's what will win the heart of an unrepentant husband, not your outward appearance, but your inward appearance. He says, uh, uh, it should be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And you say, well, yeah, but, you know, Peter's just, he's just reflecting an old misogynistic mindset, you know, telling us how to 
respond to our employers, telling us how to respond to our family, telling us how to respond to citizens. But you know what? He has probably word for word more to say to pastors about being submissive than he does to any other group. He says, therefore, I urge elders among you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and one who is also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. He said, look, I've been through every school of the spirit you can imagine. And I'm telling you, walk in humility, walk in submission. <clears throat> he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, and don't do it under compulsion, but do it voluntarily according to the will of God, not with greed, but with eagerness, not as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by proving to be examples to the flock. He says, pastors, your job, don't get lifted up because you're an elder or you're a pastor or you have some title in the church. He said, it should come from a heart of humility he says, and that way when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. The great word of our time is rebellion. Tear it down, burn it down, vote it out. And there's a time that something needs to be voted out. You've got to understand what I'm saying. But we have taken the wrong standard to follow. And instead of following humility and the direction of the Lord, we're letting the current of this age carry us along. Lawlessness is the watchword of the end times. You know, we talk a lot about Antichrist, but the phrase Antichrist, the title Antichrist, is only used in John's epistles. He is called, though, I think it's probably like three dozen titles, Old and New Testament. But the one that seems to portray him in most of his evil, he's called the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness. And I want to take a risk and go out on a limb. I want to say something to our youngest disciples, our high schoolers, our junior high schoolers, our college age. This is what Bill Gothard said. If you only teach a man his rights, you'll have a rebellion. If you also teach him his responsibility, you'll have a revival. I want our young people to know that this is a tough time to learn in. This is a time that's tailor-made for reacting. But you have to learn as well as act. And disciples must learn what's important about um, responsibility and then you navigate the current of rights out of that. I want to say this. You will never have authority over the things of difficulty until you learn to function submissively in difficulty. When I graduated from high school, I, I, it, I, it was so wonderful. Now, I, I went right to work, right out of high school, uh, knowing I was going to college in the fall. Um, I had a job um, delivering auto parts. Um, it, was, it was an auto parts store, something like O'Reilly. Um, and my job was to just, they would 
repair shops would call in the order and my job was to go and deliver. It wasn't a glamorous job, but I liked it. It gave me a lot of time to play Christian music and pray while I was on the road. Um, but there was a place I went, I won't call the name of the store because the, you'll be able to track it down and find out this was your aunt or something like that. But it was a, it was a nationwide store, it, it, something like Goodyear. It wasn't Goodyear, but it was of that kind of place. Every time, without fail, every time I would go in there, um, and there I am, an 18, just barely 18 years old, I would just deliver the part and give them the bill for the part. And they usually just had to sign it. Every time, without failure, the lady that I had to deal with would call me everything but a child of God. She taunted me. She told me I was ugly. She said, you're too stupid to have any other kind of job, so they've got you doing this. And um, there was no reason for it. I had never even seen her before. Uh, but every single time for the month of June, the month of July, the month of August, every time I would go in there and I knew that if I spoke to someone who was my elder the way I wanted to, and she was my elder, she was a good 35, 40 years old, you know, and that was elder to me. And um, I, knew, I knew if my dad had a business and I knew if he heard of it, I might be 18, but I knew my dad would whip me. I knew he'd take me. He said, I taught you, you don't talk to people that way and you don't talk to women that way. And so I just took it every week, every week I would take it. And I never found out why. I never found out what her promise was, uh, her problem was. She would do it to my friend, but only on occasion. She said, oh, she treats me nice. She never says anything, you know. And he meant literally. She, never, she didn't even acknowledge my presence. She just took the thing inside. And, and it puzzled me. And it would get me so angry. And I said, Lord, this ain't right. And, and that was a prayer I prayed a lot in those days. Lord, this ain't right. <laughs> and my last day on the job, I went there and she unloaded. It was as though she knew it was my last day. She just unloaded on me. I just, uh, she said, I bet I've really given you, and she said a nasty word this summer, and made you hate me. And I said, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. God bless you. I hope you have a good day. And, um, I think her response was, don't tell me what kind of blankety blank day to have. <laughs> and as I, as I, Drove away, I thank the Lord, I will never have to see this lady again. I mean, I, that was really my prayer. And, and later I said, Lord, help me understand what's going on here. And that's when the Lord spoke something to me that I, that I would not understand for years. He spoke what I just said to you a few moments ago. You will never have authority over things of difficulty until you learn to function submissively in difficulty. See, loved ones, a lot of times we get so mad at people that God has put over us for in one setting or another, and we say they don't understand. We say they don't see what I see. They don't understand what I understand. And we go on crusades of anger and vindictiveness. But what you don't understand is that God is trying to drive something out of you so that you can be open to his blessing. Later, when I pastored tough churches, I, I remember thinking, but I struggled. I don't mean to mislead you. I struggled a lot with a lot of things. But I tell you, more than once I said, uh, 
No, no, this, this, this guy isn't as mean as that woman. This guy is not as mean as this woman. He hadn't called me any of the names she's called me. And, and I found that God was mellowing my heart to protect me from the damage that could have happened in spiritual places. And I want to say it to you. You will never have authority over the things of difficulty in your life until you learn to function submissively in difficulty. Let's go on to the second one because you're tired of that one. You say, I'm not going to be submissive to this anymore. Okay, let's go on to the second thing. Peter also says that not only is there a, a spirit of submissiveness, but there's a spirit of servanthood. Now, I know that you might say, well, that sounds like the same thing. But understand this. Number one, submissiveness has to do with attitude. It's an attitude. But servanthood has to do with action. You may have a submissive attitude and not have to do a thing. But you can't have a servanthood attitude without action. He says, younger men, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God is opposed to the proud. And I know this is by design that I'm reading these verses over and over. But he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. <clears throat> this idea of being clothed with humility literally means to tie on an apron. It's the, it's the same phrase that would be used for someone to put on a servant's garment. Jesus modeled this action for us by putting upon the apron of a servant and washing the feet of the disciples. And I put in my notes, I know that sometimes I am a slow learner, but I have become convinced. Guys, I can't tell you the importance that I'm putting on what I'm saying right now, I have become convinced of two essential, irreducible, and non-negotiable principles. You say, what do you mean by that? <coughs> they are necessary for success. You can't say them any plainer, and you can't break them apart. Here they are. Number one, I have learned that mature people are the ones who serve. Mature people are the ones who serve. Uh, critics don't serve. Those with agendas don't serve. Those that are judgmental, they never serve unless they can get put in the spotlight. But mature people are the ones who serve. Does your little eight-year-old boy, when the baby cries, say, Mama, go on back to sleep. I'll take care of, of Junior. I'll take care of him. No, no, no. Nobody that's immature thinks, well, there are exceptions, but few people that are immature think of doing what needs to be done. It's always the mama. It's always the daddy. <laughs> so a friend of mine said he was in a grocery store one time and he was, saw a man with a, a, a child stroller in one hand and a grocery buggy in the other. And he said, as he was walking along, he heard this man say, uh, calm down now, Joey, calm down. It's all right, Joey, stay calm, stay calm. Uh, Joey, get a grip on yourself. You know, everything's going to be fine. And he said he saw somebody go over and say, sir, I want to tell you how impressed I am of your patience with little Joey. He said, that's Herman, I'm Joey. <laughs> What we, listen, I'm going to tell you, it's true in church, it's true on the job, it's true in the home. 
mature people are the ones who serve. And every church is, I mean, I'm not just picking on our church. Every church is full of critics. It's full of people that have, you know, second opinions. It's full of people that say this is the way it ought to be. It's full of people that say you ought to have done this or you shouldn't have done that. They're all over the place. But you never find them serving unless it's self-serving. Here's the second thing that is essential, irreducible, and non-negotiable. I've learned that humility is the currency of heaven. Now you say, Pastor, you said something a while ago I disagree with. You said it's not faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. I know, but I tell you, it's certainly not possible to please him without humility. We live in a church culture that says, um, or, or that forgets that God says, if you want to experience more grace, then walk in humility. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want everybody in here to know that God doesn't promise grace and glory to the talented. He doesn't give grace and glory to the anointed. I tell you, I'm so sick of pastors that uh, uh, love pastoring but hate people. I, I, I'm, I, he, he doesn't promise to give grace and glory to someone that's talented. He doesn't promise to give it to someone that's anointed. He doesn't promise to give it to someone who has a gift. He doesn't promise it ever for that. But this is what he says. If you want grace and glory, walk in humility. You say, is it really that important? Yes, it is. Because I want to tell you this. Without humility... Not only does not God not give you grace. See, Justin, will you come up here and help me just a minute? See, if Justin is pride-filled and arrogant, and he, <laughs> he, he may say, God, give me your grace. But not only does God say no, God says and I'll stop you from getting anywhere near it. I will oppose you. I will fight you. I will resist you. You'll never see my glory. You'll never see my grace. Back off, boy. A lack of humility, a lack of servanthood and submission makes God your enemy. Can I ask you this? When you walk in arrogance and pride, don't you think it's rather audacious to ask God to finance your carnality? Well, we'll talk about that next week. Here's number three. Boy, we got to hurry. Y'all are so slow today. <coughs> There's a spirit of submissiveness and a spirit of servanthood. Now, submissiveness, as we say, has to do with attitude. Servanthood has to do with action. Loved ones, don't make God your enemy. Here's number three. There's a spirit of steadiness. Steadiness. He says, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. Now, listen, we all have moments of difficulty. All of us. From the most mature to the least mature, we all have moments of carnality instead of spirituality. Adrian Rogers preached a sermon one time. The name of it is, it's not right for the upright to be so uptight. <laughs> but he says this, he says, 
Not only do I want you to have a spirit of submissiveness where your attitude is one of, of caring and putting others first, but he said, I want you to have a spirit of servanthood where your actions serve others. And then he said, in all of this, the demands that that can create, he said, I want you to have a spirit of steadiness. And you get that steadiness by putting your anxieties on the Lord. He says, cast your care upon the Lord because he cares for you. And cast is a definite, deliberate act. <laughs> I, I, you, I, my pastor used to tell a story about a man that was walking down the road and he had a huge load on his back. It was a, it was a big canvas bag that he could tell probably weighed 150 pounds. He says, and he was walking, the man was struggling. He's trying to go uphill with this pack and he was just exhausted. Somebody in a wagon came by and said, neighbor, let me give you a lift. And he said, oh, thank God. And he climbed up in the wagon and then threw the bag over his shoulder. So he's carrying that heavy bag in the wagon. And the wagon driver says, why don't you put that down in the back? He said, he said, oh no, it's enough for you to carry me without carrying this too. Okay, there was a man who's walking alone. You say, that, that ain't right. I know it's not right. But that's the way we cast our care on the Lord. The Lord says, let me carry you. Let me help you with that load. And we get in the wagon and we still hold on to the heavy bag ourselves. Saying, Lord, it's enough for you to carry me without having to carry this too. Loved ones, he's able not only to carry you, but he's able to carry the load. Here's number four. Let's hurry. There's a, a, a spirit of sobriety. A spirit of sobriety. Now, this is the one that's a little different than the others. He says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. It's, it's like Paul wrote in another passage. He says, you, the things that have happened to you are not uncommon. They're happening to believers all around the world. That's what Peter says. Now, you say, well, okay, you're saying God wants me to be carefree. Um, well, in a way, yes, but there's a difference between being carefree and being careless. That's why we watch over children so closely. We want our children to be carefree. We don't want our children obsessing over the six o'clock news. We don't want our children worrying about the what ifs too early in life. But we also watch over them because we know they don't have the maturity to really be careful. They do pretty good at being carefree, but they also need to be careful. I want you to take three hints from a man who learned the lessons about presumption and not being sober. Now, you remember Peter? He's the one where Jesus said, all of you are going to, to forsake me. Um, uh, Jesus knew he was headed for problem. Jesus said to the disciples, he said, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. See, now the first you is plural. The second you is singular. In other words, Jesus spoke to his disciples. It'd be like me saying, I, I have prayed, or, or, or like me saying, all of you are targets of Satan. So I, 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 
I, I want you to know you're all targets of Satan. You are all targets of Satan. But I say, you, James, I have prayed for you. You know what that's saying? That's saying, James, everybody in here is in the, Satan's crosshairs, but you especially, so I'm praying for you. That's what Jesus said to Peter. He said, all of you, Satan wants to bring down, but there's one of you that's going to face a battle so tough that you're the object of special prayer. And sometimes we have objects of special prayer in our, our life. He said, I'll never fail you. I'll never deny you. Everybody else may do it, but not me. He, uh, he was so confident that he was able to sleep in the garden when Jesus told him to watch and pray. So he was guilty of pride, presumption, and prayerlessness. And this is the man that says, I want to tell you, be careful because at the moment you think you can't fall, that's when you're primed for falling. He, he says, I want you to understand three things about the enemy. Number one, recognize him. He, he used a very special construct in this passage. He said, your adversary. He didn't say, oh, there's a lot of evil out there. There's a lot of wickedness out there. He said, you have an enemy. His target, or, or you are his target. So recognize him. And number two, Peter says to respect him. Now, this does not imply the giving of honor. I don't ever want to give honor to the devil. But I do need to respect him. I need to understand that I do not have the ability to stand against the enemy in my own strength. Even the archangel would not bring a railing. That means a careless, uh, flittering accusation. When he was fighting with the, with the devil over the body of Moses, he said... Even the archangel did not bring a careless accusation, but he was careful to say, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. So we have to respect him, be sober and be vigilant. And then finally he says, resist him. He says, push back, resist steadfast in the faith. Now here's the last thing. A spirit of steadfastness. They say, oh wait, Pastor, you already covered that one. That's number three. No, steadiness. Steadiness. Just as number one and two are similar, you know, attitude and action, three and five uh, are similar too. Uh, let me explain to you what I mean. Steadiness has to do with how you act in the moment. You act in a steady fashion in the moment. But steadfastness is not about a moment. It's about the long haul. See, to be steady means you walk in peace in a given moment because you've cast all your cares upon him. But steadfastness occurs in the long haul because you've taken all the dangers in, you've taken all the situation in, and you've said like men of old, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You stay steady in the long haul. I know that we Christians don't like this, but there is a role of suffering. Peter is telling them there is a role that suffering has in your life. Now he's going to make sure they understand. If you're going to suffer, don't let it be because your sins. Uh, he said, if you're going to go to jail, don't let it be for robbing a bank. Let it be for being a Christian. You know, he's not talking about suffering as good in and of itself. But he says, when you suffer for the Lord... He wanted us to understand that suffering rightly responded to will strengthen us as few things can. We're done.
sort of. <laughs> We're through our five points. Okay, I want you to bring out five jade stones. And I want you to evaluate yourself. And you, know, you might want to write these down and put them in your journal. Make a little report card. How are you in these five areas? Do I have a respect of submissiveness where I realize that the greatest among you is a servant of all? I, I have an attitude. Um, if, if, it's in, if it's in America, I, as a citizen, I try to be the best, most proactive, most responsible citizen I can be. If I have to take action, I take it the right way through legal means. If, if, if I am married, then it doesn't matter who is head of the house or who's not head of the house or who should be submissive to who. He says that we are all to be submissive to one another. How can I serve my wife? How can I serve my husband? How can I serve my children? How can I serve my parents? How am I with this attitude of submissiveness? Number two, how am I with this attitude of servanthood? See, without action, submissiveness can just be a milquetoast personality that lets everybody run over them. No, 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 no. Um, I remember a drunk man confronted my dad after church one night. And he, he was just, he had such a rough life. He made Don Knotts look like a bodybuilder. He asked my daddy for, our church was on one side of us was a bar, on the other side was a strip club. That's the kind of neighborhood. The great challenge at our church was leaving at the end of church. He came up to my dad and asked for money and he said, I, I don't have any money. He said, but uh, he said, I'll be glad to pray for you. And the man started cussing, said, uh, I don't want your prayers. I want some money. And my dad said, no, I can't do that. And he grabbed my dad's shirt collar and he said, well, I'm going to take it from you. And my dad, who was pretty muscular, put his hand on his shoulder and I thought he's going to crush him. He said, I just don't think you can do that. And he said, I'm not wanting to fight with you. I'm wanting to help you. And the guy, he, he realized that the odds were against him and he just backed off. But my dad understood that there's a, a, a necessity to be in submission, but then there's a necessity for action, servanthood serves people does not submission doesn't mean that you are mistreated submission doesn't mean that you allow evil to be done to you or your family but submission says i'm going to do my best to live at peace with everyone and i'm going to supplement that with my servanthood of serving of serving how are you on steadiness when your world seems to fall apart do you fall apart I saw a sign one time years ago. It said, the Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Steadiness. Do you know how to cast your care upon him so that you don't fall apart at the first mention of bad news? 
Number four, do you have the attitude of sobriety where you realize I'm not a victim and I'm not going to live in fear, but I do realize there is reality out there. And there is an enemy of my soul. And finally, am I going to be steadfast? I'm going to have good days where I'm up here. I'm going to have bad days where I'm down here. But the bottom line is where am I in the long haul? Where am I in the long haul? I uh, remember talking to a teacher in high school. I didn't think I was going to pass the class. Um, it was... It was it was an algebra class. And I know algebra isn't exactly advanced mathematics, but it is for me. See, I, I'm not a math person. I'm pretty good with, with adding and subtracting. I'm, I can even do the gazentas pretty good. You know, the two gazenta ten five times. You know, I can do the gazentas. I'm, I'm good with numbers. I'm not good with numbers that are demonic. And... So it was my introduction to algebra, and uh, I, I, you know, and and she said, "Well, you're okay." She said, "A lot of first-year algebra students like this, you've got a C." And I said, uh, "How do I have a C?" I showed her a test that I had taken where I had gotten like 40, and I said, I, "I got a 40. How do I have a C?" She said, that's just one test. She said, look at this test. You aced this test. And she looked at all my numbers. And thankfully, none of them were single digits. But you know what she said? She said, this is the way life is. She said, you're going to have days where you score 40. And that doesn't mean you're stupid. She said, you're going to have days where you score 100. And that doesn't mean you're a genius. She said, it's the long haul, it's the average. And she said, you're all right. She didn't convince me enough to get me to take geometry or algebra too, but she was right. Steadfastness. Everybody's going to have a moment. Loved ones, if you are here and you don't have a moment that you wish you could take back, you're probably not being honest. If, if, if you're here and you don't have moments where you say, boy, I wish I'd handled that differently, you're probably not being honest or you really don't understand life. But the question is not how deep was my failure or how high was my success. The question is in the long haul, am I steadfast? That's what makes great church, it's what makes great families, it's what makes great pastors, it's what makes great citizens. Father, I ask you to help us as we look at these jade stones in our life. Father, don't let us be jaded. Don't let us think that something's red when it's not a true red. Just like those artists used to look at those stones to remember what the real color looked like. Help us to keep your word before us. Maybe these five things is a starting place to remember how we ought to behave. We ask it in Jesus' name. 